One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 18th of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. As nurses and paramedics strike in Northern Ireland today over pay and staffing levels, government here faces similar claims. Yesterday, hospital consultants voted in favour of industrial action, which could result in a strike next year over the reduced pay level of new entrants. In the Dáil, a Sinn Féin motion called on the government to address what it says is unequal pay for a separate cohort of health service workers, so-called Section 39 workers in independent, not-for-profit health organisations. These organisations are, however, funded by government and they are accountable to the state for the vital services that they provide. But the staff are on a lower level of pay than other healthcare staff. The government opposed the motion. Over 2,000 volunteer organisations receive funding from the HSE to provide health and social care services, including acute hospitals, disability, mental health, older persons and hospice services. This House will recall that Minister Simon Harris announced the establishment of the Independent Review Group to examine the role of voluntary organisations in publicly funded health and personal social services. Minister Finian McGrath, who went on to say that since uh, the announcement of uh, that review group in 2017, a dialogue forum has been established to include all stakeholders. Let's talk about this with Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, There may be talks underway, but it it doesn't seem as though there's the money available to the HSE to address these pay claims and uh, to restore pay, which was cut to these staff in these so-called Section 39 organisations. Yeah, and that's very, very unfortunate because let's not forget, you know, I mean, these are agencies like Prosper Fingal, like the Rehab Group, providing direct frontline services to people with disabilities in the main, but also uh, to elderly people and to people dealing and struggling with addiction and a whole range of issues. So these are very local-focused, community-based services. And, I mean, I'm I'm in a a somewhat unique position in that I was a union official representing them at the time when their pay was cut. And they were told very clearly then, you know, you have a pay relationship with the public service. We're cutting the pay of public servants, so we're going to cut your pay. But then it seems that, uh, you know, uh, fast forward 
10 years and uh, these people now find themselves in a situation where they're being told, well, actually, you're not the same as the public servants. So therefore, even though there's pay restoration and there's a pathway uh, to unwind and twenty in the public service, that's not going to apply to Section 39 agencies. And I suppose the, the, the unfortunately, it, this is putting pressure on services. So, I mean, I have been, and I would say most TDs in the all have been contacted in recent weeks, not just by service mm. providers, but also by service users who are very worried about the uncertain future. Um, and, you know. and the funding that they get from the state uh, comes through the HSE. Does it from the overall HSE budget? In the main, yes. yes. As the small amounts that will come through other departments, mm. um, like the Department of Education, but the vast majority of their funding would come um, directly from the HSE. OK, and because the HSE has a, a staggering amount of money to spend. It announced yesterday how it's going to spend €17 billion. Euro. That's €17,000 euro. If anybody is listening to us who has a, a, a pen to hand this morning, they might want to write down 17 and then nine zeros after it. Uh, it's mind-boggling. It's beyond telephone numbers. It's a phenomenal amount of money indeed. <clears throat> and, you know, more and more of it, Michael, is going into the private sector and more and more of it is going to shore up the recruitment and retention crisis by having to fund very expensive agency staff. So we have a situation now where uh, we have staff leaving Section 39 agencies. They're not going to work in the public service, they're going to work in the private sector, and they're then being contracted into the HSE. But most of the services provided by Section 39 agencies Mm. are provided by service level agreement. But what has happened is, year on year, they've had their money cut back, but there hasn't been any consequent uh, cutback in terms of the service provided. So they're they're cutting back the grant money available and obviously that was passed on to the staff as we know in terms of pay cuts. But they didn't cut back on the level of service required. So the HSE mm. are simply saying to these people we want you to provide the same level of service we need you to provide the same level of service but we're not prepared to incrementally increase uh, the uh, the grant that you're getting in order to ensure that you can reasonably be expected to provide those services. But it's still and impossible to understand uh, because an additional €1 billion euro was given to the HSE to spend next year in last year's budget or in October's budget. Uh, yesterday, a- an additional €50 million was given to the HSE uh, but they say they still don't have enough money, that because they don't have enough money, they're going to have to close nursing home beds uh, and that they have to find hundreds of millions of euro in savings to shore up what they say is an estimated 420 million euro shortfall in terms of the funding allocated to it. And the Irish Times is reporting this morning that this means that there's a challenge at best to restoring pay to the workers in these 39 organisations outside of an initial group of 50 organisations. Now, we heard the Minister say there's some 2,000 of these organisations. Yeah, but not all of them would have uh, not all of them would have directly employed staff yeah. uh, to any great extent. So, I mean, a lot of them are very, very small uh, one- and two-person operations, but there, are, there would be, in the main, in terms of service providers uh, in the region of about 50, uh, who will be among the main uh, service providers sure. uh, okay. providing services directly to the HSE. But let's look. I mean, you know, Michael, it is a staggering amount of money, right? And when you mm. write it down and you start writing down the zeros yeah, yeah, and you're, you're, yeah. you're, the zeros are nearly falling off the edge of the page, 
but you have to look at what the money is being spent on. Okay, so not all of it is being spent on delivering frontline services. They have service level agreements with the Section 39 agencies, but if the Section 39 agencies are not in a position to provide that service, then I'm looking at the HSE and thinking the HSE is not in a position to provide these services either. We have a reliance on Section 39 agencies, but if they can't compete uh, in terms of uh, wages for staff and if they can't compete in terms of conditions, the staff are leaving and they're going into the private sector and more and more of the budget is being spent in the private sector, either purchasing private nursing home beds, putting money into the National Treatment Purchase Fund and purchasing bed nights in private hospitals or indeed uh, into agencies to ensure that staff can be rostered um, mm. instead of directly employed staff, which is a very expensive way to, to employ staff. I mean, I questioned Paul Reid, the uh, Director General of the HSE, on this last week and I asked him if he had set any targets to convert agency staff into directly employed staff. Now, I mean, he talked a lot in his response, but the short answer would have, the short answer would be just to tell me no, that there is no target set. So, you know, it's not the amount of money, which is eye-watering, I absolutely grant you that, mm. but it's how that money is being spent. And I suppose it's a case of, you know, what we were saying to the Minister last night is, if you spend this money on the Section 39 agencies, you will not have to spend the money purchasing those services from the for-profit sector. Because remember, these Section 39 agencies are not-for-profit um, delivering frontline services, mm. but those services will still need to be delivered. And it, it's like the, the, trying to get the message through to the Minister last night that it is not good enough to simply rhyme off uh, who these agencies are, where they are, and the work that we do. We all know that, but they have to be put on a sustainable footing. I mean, I've had very scary correspondence sent to me um, by service providers in my own area in Fingal telling me that they are fearful um, for uh, the future of the services. Mm. And these are directly frontline services, you know, in the main provided for uh, people with disabilities um, and intellectual disabilities. And, you know, I mean, the service users and their families are very worried. They're on a kind of a, a year-to-year basis with the funding, but it means that they, they are not in a position to plan and they're losing staff. Okay. Losing um, staff what, what, about, what about the consultants? Uh, do you support uh, their pay claim or would you think that they should stand in line? Because I, I take it that uh, a lot of the Section 39 workers that we're talking about would earn less than 50000 a year. Uh, now, new consultants say they're being paid 50000 a year less than consultants who were employed before them before 2012. Yeah, and to be honest with you, I've met with the Irish Hospital Consultant Association and the Irish Medical Organisation on a number of occasions, and really there's only ever one item on the agenda, and that's staff shortages. The simple fact is, Michael, that we are educating people here in this state, and they're going to Australia, they're going to America, they're going to England, uh, they're going to Canada, they're going to places where... Not alone are uh, are they paid better, and I think that that is a factor, but it's not the only factor. But they're going to places where they can get released to do uh, continuing professional development, where their work is valued, where they feel like they are wanted as healthcare professionals. And I mean, we only have to look at the uh, the urgent care centre in uh, the Connolly Hospital there, which was due to open, promised by the Taoiseach that it would open from 8am to midnight, seven days a week. It's now open from 10 until 5. It's only seeing uh, something like 25 to 30 patients, uh, children, uh, child patients a day. And that's because they don't have the staff. Now, the knock-on effect of that is that we have kids on trolleys down in Temple Street, we have kids on trolleys Mm. in Crumlin, and we have children who are having their oncology appointments cancelled 
um, and their uh, their ongoing cancer treatment appointments having to be cancelled and rescheduled. So I really think it's a case the government have to get to grips with the recruitment and retention crisis. They need to talk to doctors. I know that money is a factor, but money is not the only factor. But if we can't resolve the recruitment and retention mm. crisis, we're going to keep having to purchase services from the private sector, which is very expensive. And we're also going to have to keep um, you know, adding people to the bottom of waiting lists and okay. the, the anguish that that and the distress that that's causing parents. Yeah. I mean, some of them well, have contacted me and it would it would actually break your heart. They're terrified for the, the care and the future yeah. for their own children. And well, that's a horrible yeah. place for parents. Oh, absolutely. And we'll hear it firsthand a, a little bit later on. We'll be speaking with Katrina Ward. People may have seen Katrina on primetime last night to uh, tell about how her son owns uh, operation was cancelled. Uh, he has scoliosis and uh, has been waiting a, a long time for this, but it was cancelled uh, after it was cancelled, after it was cancelled. And uh, as I say, we'll hear more about that a little bit later on. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment, though. Thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. That's uh, Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you heard yesterday on LMFM's news, uh, the family of Ruth McGuire have called on Louth County Council to install a handrail along the pier in Carlingford. Ruth McGuire died in March of uh, this year and Ruth O'Connell was at the inquest in Dundalk yesterday. Ruth, uh, remind us how Ruth passed away. Well, Ruth was part of a hen party that came to Carlingford from Belfast on the 16th of March. They arrived around five o'clock and then they went for a meal and they uh, were staying in a local B&B. They went to a, a local bar and ended up in a disco bar upstairs. Now, there was an issue with some members of their party and there was a second hen party there. So they were ac- actually later on asked to leave the premises. Now, Ruth didn't leave with the people when they did and she asked could she leave separately via a second door and security escorted her down an alleyway and at that stage she was telling them that she uh, she was talking about going back home to Newcastle Um, and she was told there were no taxis that would bring her back at at that stage and that was the last time anyone saw her uh, alive. So Um, there was an altercation in the bar. uh, There there seemed to be several incidents involving members of the hen party she was with and there was also a second hen party so it's it's confusing as to um, what was involved but certainly they were asked to leave and um, Ruth Ruth left separately and didn't want to. And left because of that. Because of that yeah she was distancing herself from it because she only knew uh, the the bride-to-be and two other people as part of the group that were there so um, that's why she she left the the other way and her friends who were back at the B&B realised she wasn't there when they were there and they went looking for her and couldn't find her went home Mm -hmm. and then or went back to the B&B and the next day they raised the alarm when they realised she hadn't returned. Okay. And was she seen uh, leaving uh, in the sense of which direction she went or do we know any more about well, that? Well we know from, um, she posted a photo on her Instagram account around uh, 12 midnight um, and it was it was near the water and there was, they were able to identify a door of a cottage at the Liberties Carlingford uh, in terms of where she took the photograph but they actually don't know at what point along the pier that she went in, mm. into the water but it it took took a, a number of days before her body was recovered by the members of the RNLI from Newcastle at uh, Blockhouse Island. Okay, so what else did the coroner's court hear yesterday? 
Well, they heard that there was no CCTV footage of, of the actual pier area. There was C- cameras on a boat, but uh, they weren't on at the time. So the the tide was coming in. Um, her aunt was asking about that, whether the water was in, because the injuries were consistent with drowning, um, as the post-mortem found. But there was... The, the, her aunt had expressed surprise that there were no broken bones or anything like that if she'd landed you know mm. hard that uh, she must have landed in the water but there, there's just uh, there, there were no experts on tidal movements at, at the hearing yesterday to, to, to give evidence in relation to that point Okay and her, her her mother uh, spoke to the inquest and she uh, was critical of how young people were coming into Carlingford uh, and money is being made on their on the backs of their they're coming into t- as part of stag and hen parties and actually we heard that since uh, they lost Ruth they were made aware of I think her brother said two cases but certainly they, they mentioned one definite case where a, a member of a stag party had admitted afterwards sheepishly to his family that he'd ended up in the water and and, but had managed to get himself out. But obviously he'd been drinking, so he had a lucky escape in that respect. Mm. So they were just highlighting how open the pier is and that if you did fall in and you were trying to pull yourself out, there's nothing to hold on to. And that's why they're looking for the handrail. And what did Rhoda Maguire, the coroner, say in relation to that? He said he would raise that with Louth County Council and uh, the, the concerns and see if it would be possible. Now, having uh, as I cover Louth County Council's monthly meetings, this has already been raised with them. Uh, it was raised with them very quickly after uh, Ruth Maguire death so they are aware that there are requests for for the safety well I think it was safety barriers at the time and I think the family were also looking for improved public lighting in, in the area as well okay thanks for that Ruth Ruth O'Connell uh, reporting on uh, that inquest into the death of Ruth McGuire afterwards uh, Ruth's mother Geraldine Worthington spoke to reporters what I'm suggesting is that they now have to do something about it I mean it is unsafe I mean we've just been told about another person that fell in two weeks ago by someone actually here at the court. A friend of theirs fell in two weeks ago in the same spot. So quite clearly there's an issue. I mean, and if you identify a problem, you do something about it. You just don't ignore it. They did uh, say when it was brought up in their council meeting a couple of weeks after Ruth's death that they were waiting on the coroner's report, which could have been next year. So I mean, that would have been a full year. They were prepared to wait while there could be a safety issue in their own time. I mean, and after that, they were going to have a health and safety uh, audit done, which could put maybe another six months under this. So, I mean, we're not happy about that. The whole focus of this town now is to bring hundreds of young people from all over Ireland for hands, 18th birthday, 21st days. There's nobody there demanding these people. There are no parents there. There's no partners there. I mean, they're all drinking more than they should. I mean, some of them are only 18 years of age. They don't know the town. I mean, they're making loads of money out of them in the bars and the restaurants because some of the bars own the restaurants they're bus from one place to the other the boarding houses they all belong to the same people so I mean they do have a responsibility a moral responsibility to look after these people they're encouraging them to come into their town so it should be as safe as they can make it that's uh, Ruth McGuire's mother, Geraldine Worthington, speaking to reporters outside of uh, the coroner's court in Dundalk yesterday. Now it's Wednesday morning and that means uh, that the local newspapers are available to you in your news agents. And as always, Marie Kearns is here to tell us what the front pages are reporting on. Uh, what have you got for us uh, this week? We begin in Drogheda, I think, uh, with an appeal uh, at this time of the year, I suppose, one uh, that resonates 
resonates with a, a lot of people who are in hospital or have loved ones in hospital, but uh, an appeal to get somebody home from a hospital yeah, for that's that. That's right. Um, Michael, this story is actually um, a story we've covered before. It's about uh, little Hannah Donnelly, who it sadly seems is going to spend another Christmas in hospital. But Hannah was remembered by her pals in the Drogheda Boys Choir during their performance recently for Christmas. They have released a CD with the proceeds going to Hannah's Fund and they made sure that uh, the teenager wasn't forgotten at the concert when they proudly held up letters depicting her name, Hannah, letting her know that she was uh, remembered, which was a really lovely gesture. And Hannah is our number one. That was the lead story. Uh, the lead heading Very on the good. story. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, then we go to the Dundalk uh, Democrat, uh, which is reporting from the courts uh, uh, an awful story of uh, a man uh, who was abusing his stepson. That's right, Michael. A terrible story altogether. The papers reporting that a 31-year-old man who was found guilty of sexually assaulting and mistreating his stepson in County Louth when the boy was five and six years of age, was jailed for six years at Dundalk Circuit Court last week. Meanwhile, inside the paper, a young lady making the news is 10-year-old Lily McLean from Knockbridge in Dundalk, who was the youngest performer to receive one of the four awards in the speech and drama category at the Leinster School of Music and Drama annual excellence awards last week so well okay. done to her all right and a separate court case making the front page of the argus and dundalk this week that's right michael and we covered this uh, during the show last week the lead story is given over to the mohammed moray murder trial uh, after he was found not guilty by reason of insanity of the murder of uh, yozuki sasaki Uh, Inside then the paper on page six, there's a lovely tribute to Madonna Lambert, who has just retired as principal of Kilcurley National School. Okay, well, I'm sure she's gone, but won't be forgotten by many for a long time to come. Let's uh, go to the leader in Dundalk uh, and uh, another story with uh, a Christmas twist and uh, the generosity of a local business person. That's right, Michael. I love the story. Uh, It reports that Vikram Singh, who owns Sitar Indian Restaurant in Carlingford, has very kindly offered to open the doors of his restaurant on Christmas Day for those who are either struggling financially to put dinner on the table or for those who may be lonely and have simply nobody to spend the day with. He told the paper, I opened up my restaurant in Carlingford three years ago and now that I am established in the community, I want to give something back to the people of the area by inviting them into my restaurant on Christmas Day and he'll be open from 1 to 4pm and says the people can either come in and eat or take the food away. Well done, Vikram. Another Christmas story or another story with a a Christmas twist makes uh, for the front page of one of uh, the papers uh, this week. What's uh, the Mead Chronicle leading with? We covered that yesterday about the Christmas tree being stolen from a granny national school in Athby and they have a picture on the front page showing that the tree that was stolen has now been replaced so it's uh, good news there that at least the children have their Christmas tree back in the school inside the paper there is a very special story about a very special lady on page 10 none other than Anna McEnroe from Dunboyne who celebrates her 100th birthday this week 
Anna still lives at home with her 95 year old husband John and is still very active so an inspiration okay. to all of yeah. us Michael uh, Anna's toy boy uh, absolutely <laughs> <laughs> very good uh, and uh, many happy returns to you Anna uh, and uh, thanks for bringing us uh, those stories a lot of different stories there this week from the papers Marie uh, and people may want to comment on them because you'll be back in the next few minutes with some comments should some comments come to us and if you would like to make comment on the programme uh, this morning you're welcome to give Marie or Maggie a call now on 1850 Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, a group of sex workers, uh, the Sex Workers Alliance of Ireland, held a candlelit vigil outside of Leinster House yesterday. Let's hear why Katrina is a sex worker and chairperson of the Sex Workers Alliance and on the line. And a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning, Katrina. Uh, yesterday, I believe, was International Day to Eliminate Violence Against sex workers? Um, yes, it was. We actually had to move our vigil to the Department of Justice because there was something else going on in front of Leinster House. Um, and the reason why we were doing that was um, at the moment, because of the laws that are currently in place, um, which includes uh, sex workers, clients are criminalised, and other laws which include sex workers working together, um, is also uh, crim- criminalised and next year we will see a review of the laws in 2020 and the Department of Justice will be conducting it and um, we will be asking um, the we'll be asking the Department of Justice to repeal those laws and to look at them again um, um, because particularly a lot of sex workers now are experiencing much higher levels of violence since the introduction of these laws in 2017. Why is that do you think? Because these laws were introduced to protect sex workers weren't they? Um, yeah, well, that was the um, intention around them. Um, but unfortunately, the evidence says otherwise. Um, the Department of Justice in Northern Ireland actually conducted um, a review of the laws because they introduced it back in 2014. And uh, they had a um, review of the law before and afterwards, which just came out there a few months ago. And what they were finding was that sex workers were like less likely to go to the Gardena because... They were afraid that if they go to the Gardaí about anything that was happening to them, mm. and they, the firstly the Gardaí will find out where they're working, and they're afraid that the Gardaí would use that use information later on to go and try and surveil their apartment and try to go after their clients. Right, because they can only go after their clients because uh, if uh, you go to the Gardaí and uh, tell them that you are a sex worker, you're not doing anything wrong in the eyes of the law. That has been decriminalised and it's the people who purchase sex who have become criminalised. Yeah, and but the other odd, problem odd is... Then, is that, odd then, isn't it, that people are afraid to go to the guards when they're not doing anything wrong? But the problem is, is the same organisation who goes after the clients also, because um, these sex workers still need to make money. Like, they still have to see clients. Like, they can't just be sex workers and not see clients. And so as a result, they still need to go and make that money. And they will be afraid that that information we use mm. to go after their clients. They're, and um, and this causes a problem where there's uh, that particularly the Operation Quest, who go after sex worker clients, are the same units who are going after, who you have to go to when you experience a crime as a sex worker. And so you don't feel comfortable with that happening. 
Um, and the other thing is, is, if you work with another worker, that's also criminalised too. And we saw there a few months ago as well, where two workers who were working together, one woman was pregnant, was jailed because um, they were working together. And so if you say... For, for, keeping a, work- for keeping a brothel, as uh, yeah. the offence would have been. Uh, is there a lot of money in it, Katrina? Um, it depends. It's quite. It can be quite precarious work for some... Uh, it can be good money for some and mm. um, they're able to go kind of go go for what it is it's still business so if it's busy it's busy and if it isn't it isn't mm. uh, how much would you expect to uh, earn off a client um so there's people who charge different rates so you could have for an hour some people are charging um particularly for street based work might be charging something as little as 20 euros for a blowjob to people who are charging maybe um, 200 euros for an hour. It really varies on a wide range, and particularly organisation organization deals with mm. people who come from different backgrounds. How, how many hours a day would uh, somebody work, typically speaking? Um, I think it's quite hard to quantify. Like There might be people who only see a few people once, mm. one person per day. Maybe a few um, and they might see a few people then per day. They might see five or six. And it can really vary uh, from person to person. So you could be earning up to €1,200 Euro a day. It, but it really depends on that person. It could be people who'd be earning way less. And at the mm. moment, because the way the things have been going around clients, people are earning significantly less um, than before. Mm. It's a lot of money, isn't it? Um, uh, and all tax-free, of course. Well, no, like a lot of sex workers pay tax, um, including myself. Really? Yes. Okay, as a self-employed person, is it? Yes. Okay, uh, and you say that violence has increased. Uh, tell us uh, uh, about how the clients behave and what type of violence uh, there is against you. Um, so, um, Ugly Mugs, which is the site that um, a lot of sex workers use in order to report fine and crime, um, it's a screening site. Um, what they have found since the introduction of this law, that there has been a 92% increase in violent crime mm-hmm. uh, since the introduction of these laws. Um, and again, like I said before, um, sex workers are afraid now to go to the Gardaí because they're afraid that their apartment will be surveilled. Mm-hmm. And so what we're finding is is sex workers are more reluctant now to go to the to the Gardaí and people people are using that to their own advantage mm. um, where they see they know that sex workers are too afraid and so they will then more likely to um, be targeted because they see them as low-hanging fruit. Okay. Uh, and what do you mean when you say violent? Uh, what, what is a violent attack? Is that somebody being beaten black and blue or what is it? Yes, it can be that. It can be robberies. Um, there, um, we've had like several, ni- there's been knife attacks. Um, sexual assault is unfortunately quite common um, as well. Um, and uh, people, just people, like particularly, um, like we had there recently um, a bunch of knife attacks and people can be gangs as well, targeting mm. these girls too. What, what do you mean by um, sexual assault, Katrina? Uh, because you're selling yourself for sex. Uh, so what is a, a, an assault in that context? 
Um, an assault is when you, if there's a service that you don't agree to do um, or that you're not being, let's say that that person does not have any intention of giving any money towards it. So they just turn up, they then um, go for the, then go and rape the girl with no intention of, there's no agreement prior beforehand. That's the difference, that there's no consent given towards um, the, towards the service. Or that somebody won't wear a condom or something like that, is it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, What do you believe is uh, the solution? You say that the laws that were introduced uh, to protect you and uh, other sex workers are not working, that they're working against you. So what do you believe is the solution? So um, in New Zealand, they have uh, decriminalisation. That means that sex workers are regulated as a form of work rather than being regulated under criminal law, which it currently is. Um, and it is something that international bodies like Amnesty International, UNAIDS, uh, the Global Alliance Against the Traffic in Women, all agree, um, and the evidence points towards that too, is the safest way uh, for sex workers to be able to work under. Um, and they have much better uh, relationships with the police, like uh, New Zealand, the New Zealand government conducts a review of the law afterwards, and there was much better relationships with the police and sex workers in general just felt much, much safer. So what in effect would that mean? Liberalising prostitution laws, uh, licensing brothels uh, and uh, uh, making it uh, totally legal uh, in places uh, like uh, Holland and that where you would see prostitution uh, available all of the time? Um, So Holland and Germany are not ideal um, legal models. I've actually worked in Germany and it's not ideal at all, and it actually makes it much more difficult for particularly independent workers to um, work under their legislation. Um, and actually, New Zealand is um, has uh, different laws hmm. where it means that it's much easier, particularly for people who want to work independently. Okay, but is it that you want brothels licensed and regulated uh, so uh, that people are, are checked by healthcare staff and that sort of thing? Um, yeah, so um, to yes, to an extent that that um, sex workers then can um, work then together safely um, is uh, one of the biggest things that particularly that New Zealand made possible and for them to work independently as well. Mm. Uh, obviously, there's a, a lot of people who would object to that, Katrina. But the thing is, this is happening no matter what. And what's happening now, um, even if you try to criminalise it, um, whether we see it in Sweden or in America, is that people are going to do it. And what's happening is is just putting people um, more likely are are more unsafe, their lives more endangered. And um, would it not be better to at least pe- keep people safe? And that's really what it's about, is okay. about protecting people. Okay, just ju- ju- just by the way, uh, can I ask you, why do you do it? Do you do it for fun? Do you do it for money? Do you do it as a, a means of income? Do you do it as a, a way of paying for something else? Or, or what is uh, the reason uh, that uh, you are a sex worker? Um, well, it means it's income for me. Um I um, particularly like that living in Ireland is quite expensive. Um, I had an, I had another job on top of that because it did not pay enough. Um, we're, um, we we find particularly we have a lot of people who are mothers who work another job and then do this on top of that in order to provide um, the 
sort of opportunity and enough money for their children or to give them a good life. Okay, Katrina, we leave there. Thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, Katrina is uh, the chairperson of uh, the Sex Workers Alliance of Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you have been saying to us. Marie Kearns is back with some of uh, the calls and comments that have been coming to us uh, this morning. What have you got there, Marie? Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody. A mixed bag here, Michael, uh, from today and yesterday. Sean was in touch listening to your interview um, with Louise O'Wiley at the top of the show and he feels that our health service is not fit for purpose and it's time for the government to accept this. And he says, Michael, if there is a general election, it may bring some resolution to the situation because whoever forms the next government, he says the man in charge, i.e. the new Taoiseach, whoever he or she may be, will will really have to think about the health in this country and the service and the fact that there's so much wrong with it. And he needs or she needs to choose somebody to hold this portfolio that can get to grasp with it, get to grips with it, and is able to grasp what it's all about. Okay. Uh, Another listener thinks that the pay sector in the health service needs to be looked at. Our TDs are paid way more than they are worth. Maybe we should concentrate on paying those who work above and beyond the call of duty for their money. I don't think anything would pay you to work in our hospitals at the moment. This listener. Well, it's a tough job. There's no doubt about it. How many times, Michael, Margaret Mm. wants to know, are we going to be talking about the health service and the need for change? The pay is not up to scratch. The service is not up to scratch. And there seems to be too many bosses and not enough people on the front line. Uh, another listener, John, phoned in and John says that uh, his worry every year is the numbers that end up on trolleys uh, during the winter time and the hospitals not being able to cope. And John feels that uh, why is there not more planning made to cope with this? That it's very hard and particularly on the elderly because they are the most vulnerable at this time of year open to infection and the like. OK, well, let's stay with uh, the health service and indeed staff shortages in uh, the health service. As you heard Louise O'Reilly of Sinn Féin say earlier in the programme, sometimes uh, this leads uh, to cancellations, the cancellation of surgery on occasion. And that was uh, the case in Temple Street Children's Hospital on Monday just gone. Let's hear what happened. Katrina Ward is uh, the mother of Owen. A very good morning to you, Katrina, and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. And I know that you're hoping against hope uh, that Owen will get his operation on Friday, but it's been one disappointment after another for you and Owen and indeed uh, for your family. People would have seen you on primetime last night. Uh, But for those who didn't, tell us a, a little bit about own. He's 16 years of age uh, and uh, he was diagnosed as having scoliosis about six years ago. When he was 10, tell us about the level of curvature in his spine. Good morning. Uh, Yes, so Owen is 16. He's currently at 94% probably plus curvature. Uh, Six months ago, the last uh, x-ray showed that he was at 94% curvature. He had an x-ray done last Friday. This was in preparation for his surgery, Mm. which was to go ahead on Monday. And the surgeon said to me that they couldn't x-ray his back. It was that bad. So 
back to mm. me is telling me it's hitting 100% because he said right. it would hit 100%. So over the so, course of a, a month, uh, it has increased by that 6%, but six years ago, it was at 84%, was it? Uh, four years ago, it was at 84%. So, um, yeah, so it's literally, they we were told um, probably... T- 10 months ago, it will go a degree a month, basically, because this it, the, it, it's like the bough of a tree, I suppose. It's just gravity. Nothing is going to stop it now. It's just mm. going to increase, um, and that's what's happening. You do, know, does, does, it, does it get to a point where it's irreparable? That's my concern. Um, I have highlighted that with the surgeon, and um, I'm not 100% sure, um, but they're telling me that they're, they still want to go ahead with the surgery. So it's, um, I'm not 100% sure with that, to be quite honest with okay. you. Can um, you but tell that me, is definitely a concern of mine. I'm sure it is. Uh, can you tell me about uh, the experience you've had over the last six years? Uh, I'm sure as, as soon as you were told that Owen had scoliosis, you were hoping uh, that an operation could take place uh, to rectify that curve. Uh, yeah, well, like, it's, Owen's condition is quite complex. So, you know, he's his main condition is holocosteopathy. He's cerebral palsy. He's epilepsy. His hip was the first thing that dislocated. That dislocated probably around eight years ago. So initially, we were doing a lot of Botox, Botox injections into his hip and into his legs to try um, ease the muscles, like you know, to relax them a little bit because his tone is high with the cerebral palsy. Um, so we did that for a couple of years. But then it was kind of, we could see the spine slowly starting to, um, you know, curve, I suppose, um, around six years ago. So at the time, the consultant that was doing the Botox injections and that um, wasn't, you know, didn't, like, you know, wasn't experienced enough, I suppose, for Mm. spinal surgery. So that's when we went to Temple Street and um, we... At that stage, they then told us that he was at 84% curvature. So Mm. it kind of really increased rapidly, you know. um, Mm. And but the waiting list there was 18 months. Like, you know, we he said he like, you know, that he was going to do his best to do surgery within three months. Okay, that was six years ago. And Mm. that was uh, that was no, that was around four years ago. So that was with Crumlin four years ago. And then we moved to Temple Street, just desperate at this stage, Mm. just to find you know, somebody that would do the surgery because it's, you know, it's complex. Own oh, condition yeah, is yeah, complex. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, scoliosis surgery is a big surgery on anybody, but on own, it's extra, you know, challenging because of everything else that comes with his condition. So when we, you know, so again, we've just spent the last two years really trying to um, get this date, basically, mm-hmm. and we finally got it. For Monday and thought it was going to happen and last minute unfortunately it didn't so I'm still now in a position that I'm praying it will happen on Friday but I'm still not 100% sure that it will. Okay uh, you weren't expecting it up to Sunday were you and then you got a call on Sunday saying that the operation was going to go ahead on Monday. Well we, ha- we, we had the date a few weeks ago so as a family we said right we'll get ready We'll, you know, we had a Christmas party at the weekend. You know, we just mm. said we put Christmas on hold and do, you know, we'd concentrate on the surgery. So they, but they did say to us, 
it would be based on bed availability. Um, so, you know, we kind of always knew, OK, there was a risk with that. Mm. But we got the call saying that there was a bed. So we thought, brilliant. You know, and then we got another call an hour later or an hour and a half later. Or so saying, sorry, emergency come in. The bed is gone and it, the surgery is cancelled. Mm. Then we got another call Monday morning. Actually, things have changed. Come in. Um, the surgery's going ahead and we got in Monday morning around 10 o'clock or not long after 10 o'clock, got him ready. They did the bloods. We met the team. Uh, we met the um, anaesthetic. You know, they went, mm-hmm. I signed the consent form, everything. And literally just about to put the gown on and the surgeon came around the corner saying, I don't think it's going to happen that it was because of the shortage of one nurse in ICU. They needed mm-hmm. three to care for own afterwards. Yeah. And it was a shortage of one, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, I think you'd uh, agree with the HSE in that it says it would have been unsafe to carry out. Uh, the Absolutely. Surgery. And I wouldn't, you, you wouldn't want that. Own, or I wouldn't want that. And I wouldn't want the nurses. Mm-hmm. You know, the nurses are just working crazy, crazy hours at the moment, you know, and going sent home and sleeping for four or five hours, maybe less, mm-hmm. and going straight back in. So that's you know, it was too risky and that was what it was. That was the bottom line was it's too risky to ask staff and to put own in that risk mm. as well. So that's why they have to they said they had to, you know, cancel it unfortunately. Okay. So. Well, you've brought a, a lot of uh, attention to the disappointment and the concern that comes with uh, that disappointment for own uh, people would have watched you, as I said, on primetime last night. I, I think uh, own story uh, and your concern is featured in most of the newspapers uh, this morning. And uh, if it's okay, we'd like to check in with you maybe on Friday to uh, see if uh, the operation has gone ahead. And I know Absolutely. That yeah. That no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I'm just hoping that it, that it does. And, you know, it's, yeah. you know, it's amazing. Like, everybody has been amazing. The public mm-hmm. has been amazing. Um, and the support we've got is just fantastic. Um, but, you know, I just hope, you know, that it does mm-hmm. go ahead on Friday. I just really hope that it does, because I feel if it doesn't, we're going into another year of, of course, you know, yeah. uncertainty, unfortunately. OK, it'll be February, I think they've said to you. If, uh, it doesn't yes, they said Friday. February, uh, yeah, minimum, okay. earliest February. Okay. So, well, yeah. Yeah, let's hope it, it does happen on Friday and that it's possible for the hospital to carry out the surgery on own safely. Katrina, thank you indeed uh, for joining Thanks us on the programme this morning. Katrina Ward, uh, whose 16-year-old son, Owen, is waiting for that surgery. Now let's go back uh, to the phones. Uh, what else have you got there for us, Marie? Michael, we had quite a response yesterday to your interview with Professor Dolores Cahill, chairwoman of the Irish Freedom Party. I'll just give you a flavour of some of them. Okay. Bridie says she was disgusted with you, Michael, during the interview. No. You barely gave the woman a chance to talk. While you may not agree with what she has to say, you have to recognise that there are a lot of people who would be in agreement with some of the points she's making. Mm. Bridie says she believes that the Irish are being discriminated against in their own country at the minute. Okay. Not enough has been done to help those in mm. need of help. Michael implied that there was welfare payments etc in place for the Irish when they travelled abroad for work she is one of those people who worked abroad and says that she would have had to live on the streets if she had not worked why aren't the people who have been brought into this country allowed to work when they get here no one would have any issue if they were working and paying their way instead of having to be dependent on welfare payments Okay well that's uh, wrong of course uh, because uh, if you travel within the European Union as a member of the European Union you're entitled to the same welfare payments that people in that country are entitled to Uh, and uh, I take it uh, uh, that uh, there's some group of people that Bridie hates, that uh, Bridie wants to speak 
hatefully of uh, is it uh, because of their skin colour or their religion no, well or she never mentioned hate here Michael she, she didn't she well didn't that's what we're talking hate. about Marie that's, 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 yeah, that's, no, that's what we're talking about yesterday was the legislation to introduce uh, hate uh, speech uh, and the idea is that you wouldn't speak hatefully against one group of people uh, and that was the discussion yesterday uh, and Bridie uh, appears from what you're saying there to feel uh, that uh, like our guest yesterday that uh, it wouldn't be right. Michael, I think you made a good point. Re should social housing not go to the most needy on the list, says Joanne. Okay. And whether mm. um, it should make a difference or not, uh, whether the person on the list is mm. Irish or not. However, there are people on the list who have contributed to the economy by way of paying their tax. So should they not get preference over someone who hasn't if they are both of similar need, says Joanne. Well, if they're of similar need, uh, I'm sure uh, they'll be looked on uh, in a, a similar way. Uh, but uh, the, it's a question of prioritor- prioritising needs and if people are in more need than other people. Eric says your guest is a realist, Michael, okay. not a racist. Okay. She is just expressing her beliefs and okay. is entitled to them. All right. Did Eric say who it is that he hates that he wants to speak hatefully of? Fran says that Dolores is right, that there are people coming here to Ireland to get handy money. Oh. Can you not see that, Michael, at all? All right. Uh, and should... uh, I take it Dolores hates these people. Uh, does she want to tell us which people it is that well, she this, hates this that is, are coming this here is to Fran get money? Fran who's talking about okay. Dolores. Okay. And mm-hmm. he, Fran feels oh, sorry, yeah. mm-hmm. that we should should join up with Britain and leave the EU. Okay. So that's his thoughts on it. Uh, Emma says that Irish people should be entitled to the best welfare. After all, it is our country. Okay. Uh, uh, Instead of who? Who is it uh, that she hates? She didn't say, no? She didn't say who she hates, Michael, no. Or if she hated anybody, I, I have to add. She she didn't mention Well, hate. we were talking about hate speech, Marie. Uh, and uh, at a, a time, uh, at the time of year that we're coming into, as we come into, because I know there were a lot of calls like that. I just wonder if uh, these people are Christian-minded or if uh, they have any beliefs uh, in uh, humanity or equality or if it's uh, that one group of people are necessarily better than another group of people because of where they came from uh, and uh, how that fits into their basic beliefs and so on. But well, anyway, we're happy mm. to give them the platform oh, to have the yeah. point yeah, of view yeah, heard. And, that, and that's why we heard uh, from the Irish Freedom Party as well on the programme yesterday. OK, thank you indeed for that and uh, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, let's uh, go to Trim where uh, there's uh, a lot of concern about a uh, few places in the secondary school. Padre Bean is a TD for Meath West and founder of the AIM2 Party. Very good morning to you, Patrick Tobin, and thanks for joining us. A hundred children who may have no school to go to, and uh, indeed uh, their family is very concerned about this. Yeah, so the context to this uh, so far is that Meath obviously has one of the, <clears throat> the fastest growing populations in the country. Uh, in the last 30 years, it's gone from about 100,000 uh, to 200,000 now. And it's expected that County Meath will have about a quarter of a million people living uh, in it. 
uh, in about 25 years. So a radical change uh, in population. And we also have one of the youngest populations uh, in the country. So the average age in County Mead will be about 30, while uh, on the western seaboard, the average age will be about 40. Uh, And that has, as you can imagine, Mm. put massive pressure on the infrastructure on a whole range of issues um, in the last number of years. And yet we haven't had the investment to match that growth, unfortunately. Why are we not watching it? Well, obviously, the, the, the department is fully aware of this because they have the demographic figures yeah, of course, at yeah. hand. They yeah, know exactly yeah, how many yeah, kids are in the primary schools yeah. in each of the catchment areas that are the feeder schools into um, the secondary schools. And the, the secondary schools are aware of this too because yeah. they've put in, uh, for example... I mean, they know how many children are going to, uh, go to primary school and how many places are going to be needed. Uh, they it's know not rocket science no, at it's all. It's not rocket uh, science. And they no. certainly know how many places will be needed in the secondary schools from the Absolutely. children who are coming up through the primary schools. So, so the, 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 the demographics is kind of secondary to the conversation, unless nobody was watching it. Well, it, it, and, and this, you would think that that would be the case. And both schools, in fairness to them, have put in applications for either extensions or new bills over the last number of years. But those uh, applications are languishing in the, in the Department uh, of Education and they haven't had the attention that they need. Now, there's a little bit of light on, 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 mm-hmm. on the horizon in that, obviously, there's a planned school for Enfield, uh, which would take in a chunk of that particular catchment area. Uh, in just in the last few days, we've had a patron signed to that. LMETB uh, will be assigned as the patron to that, and that's good. But yet, <clears throat> we don't have concrete plans for actual bills or the actual extensions that have been applied for by these schools. And as a result... A large number of parents, uh, some of them living right beside these schools, have applied uh, and haven't got places as of yet. Uh, so I've been in contact with the Department of Education, and the Department of Education is now talking about providing for temporary extra capacity uh, at one of these schools. Prefabs, uh, it looks, is it? It's exactly. Yeah. So um, after all, all, the, all we've learned about prefabs over the last number of years it looks like that this is the particular solution that's at hand. And that makes it difficult for some of those schools because they're already fairly chock-a-blocked and don't have much space for recreation, etc. Mm. I don't want to do the schools any injustice. They're both fantastic schools with great results and do a great job with their students. But really, at this stage, with the knowledge we've had prior and the government's telling us that we're in a new economic environment, mm we should be able to build the necessary school capacity for our kids. But as you say, they're building one in Anfield and that may be open in time, but that's about 20 kilometres away, isn't it? It is. It's at least 20 kilometres away and uh, it's a big big enough uh, town now in itself with regards it's become a big commuter town. It would have, I suppose, a catchment area that probably reaches to about 10 miles away from um, Trim. So it would be part of the jigsaw puzzle to fix uh, this crisis in school places in Mead. Mm. But we have situations in uh, students in Navan are travelling to, to Nobrand and Shockland and mm. that boy to school uh, because of, of, of the pressure there. But when you, you say know, part of the equation, I doubt you mean for as many as 100 children. No, right now it, it, uh, 100 uh, children applied to the schools initially and were left on waiting lists. Now they are being whittled down. Uh, some mm. of those uh, parents applied for a number of different schools and therefore uh, some of those parents have started to make decisions on it. Mm. It's estimated that at least 50 parents still uh, are uh, in Trim, in Trim Town, living in, besides the, the actual schools, 
are still uh, unsure of whether they will have a place or not. So some and of them will end up at a, a prefab, some of them will end up in Enfield. Uh, but, uh, I mean, when you're talking about... A, en- Enfield won't be built in time for this to happen. So some of them will, will definitely end up in Enfield, but some of them will travel distances uh, mm. to, to get to schools. But you're talking about a, a town that has a population of, uh, what, about nine or 10,000? About 10,000, yes. Yeah. And we've only uh, the, the two secondary schools there, and only one school that accommodates boys. Um, so it's, you know, this this major uh, frustration, you know, for years in these schools because they've made the argument, they've made the case, they've demanded that the department listen to them. The department knows this. This is about the department allowing for funding yeah. uh, to go to these uh, key services, and you know, it's part of a bigger debate in Meath with regards key services. And I've been talking to you uh, before about this. Meath has had a massive growth in population, but hasn't had the investment at all uh, necessary to accommodate that new population. And, and as a result, it makes life far more difficult to people. And the rail line is obviously one of those other issues that uh, uh, is, you know, uh, in people's minds at the moment, because many people are commuting to Dublin mm. uh, three hours a day. They're living in commuter hell. They're getting up in the dark. Um, they're leaving, uh, you know, Navin and Trim and Kells in the dark, and they're getting back to those towns in the dark. They're seeing their kids uh, on the weekends because, you know, they're, they're so late home. Uh, they're having massive costs with regards mm. to commuting themselves, plus childcare and, and everything that goes with that. Yeah. Uh, and what we're trying to do is try to get the governments to fulfil their promise with regards, you know, building... Uh, the extension of the rail line uh, from Dunboyne to Navan so that people can get into the city fast. All right, and just remind us um, about the two schools and what sort of space they have. Uh, forgetting uh, about uh, Enfield or anywhere else, how many boys and girls will be able to start first year in the schools as they exist without prefabs being put in place? I haven't got the exact figures uh, in front of me with regards to what the first year intake. I believe... It's over 100 uh, in both schools, but I, I stand to be corrected uh, on that. Um, but the, currently, there is 50 students who do not have a place for next September. And many of those parents and the children themselves are quite str- so are very, very stressed. 50% more kids than there are places, in other words. You could, if you take the two secondary schools in, into place, you have 200, so then obviously 50 is 25% of that. So you, you have a, a, a lack of 25% capacity currently in the schools there. And remember that there are big estates being built in Trim and the surrounding towns and villages uh, at the moment as well. So this, you know, with, with the level of construction that's happening in Mead at the moment, there is going to be an increase in pressure uh, on places in the schools. So they need to have the new bills mm. for school wearer, and they need to have the extension uh, for the Boyne uh, Community School ASAP. Okay, and you mentioned uh, the train. Uh, you're holding a, a public meeting uh, next month on bringing uh, the train line back uh, to County Meath. Yeah, so there's a there's a cross community campaign called Meath on Track. It's cross community, uh, it's cross party, and it's kind of based on that the the, <clears throat> the I suppose successful model of the Save Navin Hospital campaign. That when people let's say put down their political differences and, and work together for a common interest, <clears throat> we can actually achieve great things uh, in County Meath. And what we're looking to do is bring people to the New Grange Hotel on uh, the 30th of January at uh, 8 p.m. Uh, and to try and mobilise a campaign in this county to get the rail line uh, built back to Navan. Um, Navan is the largest town in the country without a rail line. Uh, this morning, more people left Meath to go to work than actually stayed in the county to, to work. 
nowhere else. There's no other county in the country that has that experience. So we are the biggest commuting county in the country. My view is that we need more jobs in the county so that we can actually get people to work locally and not have the pressure on, on, on the transport system. But if the government has assigned us as a commuter county, um, we need to make sure that we have the, te- the, the, the transport infrastructure to be able to commute. Okay. And um, as I said, there's massive stresses and pressures on families now getting in and out of Dublin. And if we build this, it actually benefits the rest of the Greater Dublin area because <clears throat> it would take thousands of cars off the road in the Greater Dublin area. The M50 would see a reduction in the number of cars mm-hmm. there. So it's not just a benefit for me, it would also be a benefit for the Greater Dublin maybe area. So, the- maybe so. It's an argument that has been made and it seems lost over a long period of time. It, 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 it seems yeah. like the government, I've met the government uh, mm-hmm. and the minister a large number of times mm-hmm. on this particular issue, but we've heard recently that the Fine Gael ministers are calling for a view of the project now. Okay. now. I'm cautious about that because you and I will remember that in 2011 we had a photograph of the Fine Gael candidates outside of Navan Hospital and they promised a new regional hospital would be built in Meads uh, under their government and that disappeared like snow off a ditch. It just yep. didn't happen. And here we are in the, in the jaws of, a, of another election. And, and there'll be a train station right beside this hospital. And the government, are, yes, okay. exactly. There was meant to be a train station in Nevinstown in the north of Navan, right beside where the new hospital was supposed to be built. Um, but um, what, what we're looking to do is just build enough public pressure on the government that they, the government can't weasel out of the promises. OK, well, we'll come back and talk to you about that next month. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Patter Tobin. Uh, the founder of AIM2 and a TD for Meadwest. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, there's a serious concern uh, for many parents uh, across uh, the country and as to whether they will be able to bring their children to the crash that they're going to at the moment in January of next year because some 1,300 crashes may be without insurance. This is uh, following the announcement of Ironshore Europe that it is quitting the Irish market. The government cannot compel companies to stay in the Irish market. Consequently, need to make sure that the insurance market is attractive for such insurers in order to generate greater competition and thus improve overall current capacity and the pricing position. Critical to achieving this is bringing, bringing award levels for so-called soft tissue injuries uh, down in this country and more in line with other jurisdictions. And the NCID report corroborates this with the cost of injury claims increasing by 54% since 2005. Thank you, Tisha. Deputy Doherty has one minute. That's uh, the Tisha Leo Vradker speaking in the Dáil about uh, this ongoing problem yesterday. Now, the Alliance for Insurance Reform is calling on uh, the government to intervene in uh, this situation immediately. Linda Murray, who owns Huckleberry's Den Play Centre in Navan and a spokesperson for Play Activity and director of the Board of Alliance for Insurance Reform is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Linda, and uh, thank Thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. I suppose this is a problem that you're more familiar with than most. Are you surprised to see the impact that the withdrawal of one provider is having on so many people in this country? Oh, Michael, I'm not surprised at all. It's it's so distressing for them. Um, I actually wrote a letter, would you believe? I was just looking up my emails last night to Catherine Spohn in February of last year. And in my in my email, I said... Um, it's starting with us in play centres. It's a can of worms about to burst open. I didn't even get a response. I knew this was going to happen. Anything to do with children is just seen as just uninsurable. And having been in the same position myself at the start of this year, I can only imagine what all those um, business owners who have crashes and Montessori's and preschools are facing now coming into Christmas 
they were all on a group scheme together, so they're all insured at the same time. Mm. Um, so their insurance would normally kick off at the 1st of January and go on until the end of the year, and they only got told in the last few days. And um, There was warnings of it in the last few weeks, but in the last few days they got told for sure two days ago that they definitely wouldn't be getting insurance through um, Ironshore. Um, and that affects 1,300 um, mm. uh, preschools. And if you're not surprised, Linda, I'm sure uh, you wouldn't uh, accept that the government is surprised. And if it is surprised, you would argue that it shouldn't have been surprised. As you say, you gave warnings to the government. Uh, the doll was told yesterday that political parties had given warnings to the government and the government itself should have known that this was coming down the line. I know uh, there's no surprise and, you know, there's, there's absolutely no way that any government minister uh, could ever say that they're surprised about it because that's just completely inaccurate. Um, when I say I sent an email, I sent an email along with hundreds more, I said, mm. caption the phone. And obviously we've been um, tackling Minister Darcy for 18 months now on this. Again, I sat in his boardroom, I said this to you before, Michael, in May 2018. Um, that's a year and a half ago, telling him that this is going to happen. I presented 42 businesses at the time that were involved with children, they were just play centres, and I said, this is going to affect more than play centres, it's going to affect every business that has anything to do with children, and here we are now, 18, 19 months later, and this has happened. It's so distressing, it's so frustrating, because action could have been taken, it's, the reform is going at a snail's pace, um, the Judicial um, Council Bill, which we have been working on trying to get across the line, um, was eventually passed in July and it was only signed yesterday. Um, it was only enacted yesterday. I mean, it, it was signed by the President um, the end of July, beginning of August, and it was just uh, co-signed by Charlie Sanigan and um, Justice, uh, Chief Justice Frank Clark yesterday. What took five months? I just don't understand. I, I'll never understand this. Maybe it's because I'm not a politician, but I don't understand why things take so long. And now we're faced with these 1,300. Like, if you were to take into account that we say only each of those creches or preschools only had 10 children in each, in each one of them. That's an, an unbelievable amount of kids that aren't going to have something to go back to in January. Now, I have heard this morning um, that over 800 quotes have gone out from the other insurer, which is Allianz to Arrakis, um, which is great. But that's the quotes have gone out. Yeah, but and this is the thing. on the ground yeah. is those quotes are three times, two times, four times well, higher. Well, that's it. Uh, I, I mean, it's, uh, you don't have to close down. Uh, but you have to be insured. Uh, and if you don't close down, you pay your insurance. But are you going to pay 9,000 insurance if you were paying 3,000 last year? Or are you going to be able to afford to, to pay it for that matter? Or 6,000 next year if you were paying 2,000 this year? Exactly. Um, and uh, where I am hearing is that absolutely it's a huge increase on what they have been paying with uh, with Shore. And what's going to happen, there's only 861 quotes gone out so far. The remainder up to the 1300 still have to get there. And I, and I stress, it's just quotes that's gone out. Hopefully, I mean, my God, hopefully they will all get insurance and that all them uh, schools can reopen. I'd just be a little bit doubtful between people being able to afford it mm. and if Arcus can actually give out the whole 1300 quotes yeah. and, and get people all their insurance. because, And then you're, you're dealing with a monopoly, um, which means that there's only one insurer insuring, which we've seen um, from the NCID report, the National Chain Information Database first report on motor three days ago um, that we are being robbed by insurers and um, the insurers and legal people are getting loads of money <laughs> out of mm. all us small business owners um, and we're the ones that are suffering. So mm. um, it's just been a mental few days in terms of what's happening to businesses and again it's back to the backbone mm. of uh, business in Ireland, Michael, which is the SMEs. We're just being put under so much pressure. pressure. Um, I just got a text from a guy this morning 
um, and he's got a play centre and a preschool. So oh he's, God, he obviously right. was respected to all our calls yeah. for the mm-hmm. year. And now he's got this preschool. He said he can't even get through to try and see if he can get a quote. He knows his quote's mm-hmm. going to be way higher. And he just said, I just feel like closing up and forgetting about it all. That's well, what people are feeling. Well, there's, you know? the, 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 I can understand that. But I, I suppose you could argue that there's no need to close up, uh, even if you can't afford uh, the uh, increase in the premium. I mean, if you're going from 3000 to 9000 and if you can't afford the 9000 I suppose you could pay the 9000 and ask somebody else to pay for it. But that, of course, uh, would increase the cost of childcare for the parents. Absolutely. Um, and I think, again, you know, people are under so much pressure um, with everything. And then going back to those preschools, um, Michael, as you've seen as well, they've been asked mm-hmm. to do an awful lot of stuff from Tufla as well. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like another nail in the coffin for yeah. them. And um, the parents may I, say I, they can't afford to pay it. Uh, so I suppose they could give up work. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's crazy. A, it's a cycle. It's but a, they, it's, it's, a but cycle. it's just crazy, you know. And sometimes, it's absolutely crazy. So, um, so sometimes it's, uh, it's worth saying the obvious uh, because uh, it highlights just how stupid it is, and there's no other way of putting it. I mean, it's a crazy country. It's a crazy country. Um, we've got crazy payouts. Yeah. Um, I mean, now that the judicial council um, has been enacted, um, I am hoping that. Um, uh, we hear Mr. Darcy talking about top five awards um, mm. that are going to be reduced. And But, I mean, the question again is, and there's going to be lots of questions on mm. by how much? So if we're talking about whiplash in the UK being two or 3,000 and we're talking about it here being 20,000, are they going to bring down the awards to 15? Because that's not going to discourage people from yeah. doing Are they going to bring it down to five? And, I mean, you only have to open up uh, uh, the Irish Independent in, in the last while and see mm-hmm. some of the stuff that... Amy Malloy and Charlie Weston are talking about with cases with mm. the massive amount of awards um, that are being paid out where um, the duty of care um, is being blamed on the business owner. Um, and, and this is something that I have always said again on your show as well, Michael, mm. is just to parents and to people, if you're thinking about suing, remember it's not the insurance pot of money that's mm. going to pay you back. It's the business that will inevitably have to pay or they might end up closing if you claim. And please only claim whether it's through a crash, a preschool, um, or a play centre or an activity centre only claim where the business has been mm. negligent not because your child slipped or tripped or had an accident these mm. things happen every single day in our lives or pulled out, a, or pulled out a cup of hot soup uh, that was on that's, a, well, a, a I was, table that's the case I was referring to yeah, I, uh, I, I, I just oh my god when I thought, uh, the, the award was in excess of 40,000 wasn't it? 41 yeah yeah um, yeah, uh, the, uh, the child was scalded because the child pulled a cup of soup off a table onto themselves and was awarded forty one thousand for the burns. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and obviously that was uh, what the court uh, decided was uh, appropriate. Uh, but when you hear about Minister Darcy uh, talking about uh, the awards being reduced, uh, or, or else he says he'll super tax them, I'm sure you have to be sceptical because we're talking about this so long. You hear the Taoiseach talking in the doll there yesterday. Eventually, eventually, Michael, eventually talking about it. Well, he he was very knowledgeable. He was talking about soft tissue awards being too high and so on. Uh, But how long have everybody else been talking about it? Exactly, yeah. And it it seems to be only only coming to life now. I mean, the Alliance, um, the organisation that I'm involved in, now represents up to a million um, employees in the country. I mean, because it's, you know, it's voluntary organisations and all major, um, like, you know, retail shops, uh, uh, small businesses, all part of the alliance. I mean, literally the numbers are going by the week because people are just so frustrated with insurance. I mean, even in our sector, if you take the play centre side, Michael, I mean, and the crashes and preschools that we're talking about, they're blessed to be able to get their insurance in Ireland. We're still not able to get ours in Ireland. We've also got just a monopoly. We've only one insurance in the UK. 
we're still and we're on it. We're hanging by a thread, you know, hoping that we're going to be okay come when our group scheme expires, which is um, next summer. So um, it's just it's such a difficult time. It's a very difficult time to be in business. It's coming up to Christmas, and I just really hope that with what's happened, it's kind of like a bittersweet thing. It's awful mm. for the preschools, awful for the crashes. But will this be the final? push that the government needs to actually get reformed on quickly because by God do we need it. Well we need it and we need it very quickly in fact we need it in a matter of days uh, because as we go into the Christmas uh, things close down and things don't work anymore and uh, before we know it we'll be back and we know where for the kids to go. Your dinner wondering if your child is going to be able to get back into a crash in the new year. Yeah, well, there's a lot of people doing that this morning, Linda. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme. Linda Murray owns Huckleberry's Den Play Centre in Navan and is a director of the board of the Alliance for Insurance Reform. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now we're going to talk about a number of people who have fallen ill. It would seem as though we're going to talk about quite a number of people who have fallen ill. We're not sure why they've fallen ill, but we do know that they all attended events at the D Hotel in Drogheda. An investigation is underway to discover what might have caused people to have fallen ill. But we do know that people have attended different events and that many have said that they have fallen ill. Some believe uh, that uh, they suffered from food poisoning or may have uh, had contaminated water by drinking drinks that had ice made from that water. Uh, But we don't know the cause of this. uh, But we do believe uh, that the numbers are quite significant. Uh, Let's uh, talk now to somebody who was at one of these uh, events in the D Hotel and uh, we're joined by Dara now. Good morning to you, Dara, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Good morning, Michael. Uh, no problem at all. You, you, were at, you, you were at your Christmas party? Um, yes. So I actually organised a small Christmas party for myself and six other colleagues. Okay. Um, yeah, Christmas party night in the D on the 30th of December. Um, I have to say, up until it is Saturday night in the morning at about one thirty a.m., it me about the night. It was absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have even gone as far as to say it was one of the nicest meals that I've actually had at an event. Mm. Well, it's a fabulous hotel, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and God knows what went wrong here, but something went wrong. As you say, there was a group of six. Five of you ended up sick, uh, and... Yeah. Uh, you were uh, drinking different drinks, uh, all with ice in them, though. Uh, some water, uh, gin and tonic, uh, that sort of thing as well. Yeah, I mean, I know the five of us would have all kind of had drinks that would have ice in them. I myself was drinking water that was on the table as well as um, gin and tonic on the night. And then there was, you know, a mulled wine and Prosecco reception. Mm. But I know the one person at our table that wasn't, I think he was mainly drinking pints. Right. So there would have been no ice in them, obviously. So you're suspicious that it was the ice? Well, I've spoken to a few people, people that I would have been friends with that were at the Christmas party and also at the Bingo Loco event that night. Um, And, I mean, some of them would have eaten, some of them wouldn't have eaten. At first, I thought it was kind of the Caesar salad, Mm. mainly just sort of salad ingredients like that, because everybody at our table had had the Caesar salad. 
<clears throat> everybody who was complaining of sort of being sick and, you know, vomiting, diarrhea, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but then I spoke to a few other people who wouldn't have had their Caesar salad and wouldn't have even eaten, would have just drank. Mm. Um, and... And, and there was no food at the bingo either, Dara, as I understand it. And I'm hearing from people who said uh, that they had drinks with ice and they were sick uh, and uh, there were people there drinking pints who weren't sick. Yes, yeah. I mean, I know for a fact my cousin was at the bingo loco. He was drinking pints and I know he also had like a Jaeger bomb or maybe a shot of Jaeger, something like that. Okay. And he's been he hasn't been sick. Now, this is my third day off work sick. Um I've gone, obviously, to my GP. I made kind of an emergency appointment there on Monday because I was so sick with vomiting and diarrhea. Kind it's, of it's, on. it's coming out of everywhere, is it? Well, yeah. it's, it's not anymore, but that's because okay. I'm putting very little in, I suppose. Right, <laughs> the okay, fact yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just nausea and cramps. and It's very kind of weak. Um, now, I've, I've been on kind of nausea tablets the GP has given me, but they're not really anything for me at the moment. Mm. And you, you spoke to the environmental health officer, did you? Yes. Uh, well, I suppose I should say my first port of call was the D Hotel itself. Mm. Um, I rang them on Sunday morning. I left a voicemail. I rang, rang again an hour later and spoke to the lady on reception. She had told me that um, there had been one other kind of complaint at that stage, and I knew that that was from one of my friends my table um, so I asked to speak to the manager there and she said that she would pass on my message um, it would turn out that I wouldn't actually get to speak to the manager for a further 24 hours after that but in between speaking to the receptionist and the manager I had heard so many different things on social media um, and I decided that I would report it to the environmental health officer um, so obviously I went ahead and I filled out that form online and, you know, even people who I didn't know were kind of messaging me on Facebook and saying that they had attended the event and that they were having, you know, kind of similar side effects. Mm. And I basically just said to them, well, all I did was fill out the complaint form um, and just ask the health officer to look into it. Because obviously, you know, I don't want to be the person that is tarnishing the reputation of you know, my hotel, as I said previously, but, uh, I had an accident experience. Yeah, yeah, no, well, we know that people are sick. We know that you're sick. Uh, the hotel knows that people are sick. They're investigating what might have caused it. How many people are, are sick is kind of anybody's guess at the moment, but we're yeah. of the impression that it's running into the hundreds. Yes, I mean, like, I've heard kind of mutterings that there is sort of in around the 300 margin. Mm. I've heard that there are some people in hospital from it, which I wouldn't find hard to believe. Mm. Because and we, we can't confirm that part of it, and we can't confirm n- numbers, but we do know that a lot of people are sick. Five out of your group of six people were six. Uh, the yeah. Christmas party you were at, you reckon there were about 100 people at it. There were a lot of people at the bingo. There was a lot of people in yeah. the D Hotel, generally speaking. And yeah. it's I mean, obviously, obviously I don't know the capacity mm. of the River mm. Ballroom and the D but I mean, it looked pretty packed to me. I don't think they would have fit many more people in. So whatever the capacity is, I'd imagine it was pretty much at that. Okay, Dara, listen, uh, keep in touch and stay well. Uh, and uh, thanks uh, for telling us that. Uh, we're waiting to hear uh, officially from uh, the D Hotel, but we have been speaking to them. Uh, Marie, uh, you've uh, spoken to a spokesperson for the D Hotel. That's they, right. They're, they're not issuing a statement well, just yet. we actually yet. have got a statement. Oh, you have just got a statement. just okay. come in okay. just mm-hmm. in the last mm-hmm. couple of seconds, actually. 
And just to say that we are aware that a number of patrons have reported illness this past weekend. Following receipt of these reports, we engaged immediately with the appropriate bodies. From this initial review, it does appear that there has been a number of incidents of norovirus in Drahada, more commonly known as the winter vomiting bug. This viral illness, unfortunately common at this time of year, is quite contagious and can be easily and quickly spread when people congregate in large numbers. Management at the D Hotel are swiftly putting in place a series of measures to try to mitigate the spread of the bug through implementation of best practice procedures. We would advise anyone who has been impacted to seek advice relating to the winter vomiting bug, which the advice is available on the HSE's website. Okay, very interesting. Uh, We'll uh, obviously hear more on this uh, tomorrow, but uh, the hotel uh, suggesting that it's as a result of the winter vomiting bug. Uh, And as I say, we'll hear more uh, about that, I'm sure, uh, on the programme. Uh, if you'd like to make contact with us, I'm sure you know the ways to do that. In the meantime, uh, thanks uh, for that statement to the D Hotel. Thanks uh, for reading it for us there, Marie. Uh, and that's where we leave you for today. Our time has run out and is once again. Before we go, let me remind you that there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.